Welcome to People's Church. Before we get to this week's message with Pastor Tom Murray, we want you to know that you matter to your Heavenly Father and you matter to us. People's Church is a multi-generational faith community in Salem, committed to knowing Christ and making Him known. Sunday morning worship services at our Salem campus are at 8.30, 10, and 11.30. Watch messages anytime and plan your visit at peopleschurch.com. We pray this practical biblical teaching is encouraging, challenging, and possibly even life-changing. In the decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul, who was church planter, evangelist, missionary, author of most of what we now call the New Testament, he wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. And in this letter to the church in Philippi, Paul describes followers of Jesus. Paul describes believers as citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven. Paul uses a government word, citizen, to describe our spiritual condition. Citizen. You see, citizenship is about loyalty and citizenship is about being under the law and being protected by the law. And, and, and so really as believers, we have a dual citizenship. We have citizenship in heaven and we have citizenship many of us in this country, or maybe you're visiting, you have citizenship in another country. And the question for us today is what happens when citizenship with, in heaven, citizenship in heaven collides with our citizenship of a nation on this earth? Because when we become a follower of Christ, when we become a citizen of heaven, we don't abandon the citizenship that we have in a nation on this earth, uh, we saw the report from our team that went to Vietnam. Many of you have had an opportunity to travel to other countries. I am a citizen of heaven, but at this point in time, heaven is not issuing passports. So we need a U.S. passport to be able to travel to other nations and to get back into this country. But what happens when our national residency collides with our faith in Christ and our biblical values? What do we do when our spiritual identity collides with our national identity? We're starting a short two-part series this Sunday and next Sunday called Change, Change. And the subheading would be bringing meaningful change to a culture that is drifting from God. And not all of us, but many of us would say that we're discouraged by national, state, and local decisions that are pushing our culture, pushing our communities farther from biblical values. As we begin to talk about this today, there's a sermon that I found that may help us, and I wanna read a few excerpts from this sermon. If you're thinking, wow, this is really a good sermon, I would like to find the YouTube video, or I'd like to find the podcast. They don't exist because the sermon was preached 300 years ago. It was preached by a man named George Whitefield, Reverend George Whitefield. He was an evangelist that traveled the colonies of what is now the United States of America before we were an independent nation. We have a picture of Reverend Whitefield, unusual hair for us, but he has powerful words. 
I do wonder what Reverend Whitefield would think about our pastors in sneakers movement today. <laughs> from, a, from a sermon called The Necessity and Benefits of Religious Society, I'm going to do my best to bring the message of Reverend Whitefield to life. He preached nearly 300 years ago. Let us consider ourselves as Christians as having this natural veil in some measure taken off from our eyes by assistance of God's Holy Spirit and so enabled to see what he requires of us. Let us suppose ourselves in some degree to have tasted the good word of life and to have felt the powers of heaven to come, influencing and molding our souls to be fully and heartily convinced that we are soldiers lifted under the banner of Christ and to have proclaimed open war at our baptism, open war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are surrounded, Whitefield preached, we are surrounded with millions of foes without and infected with a legion of enemies within. That we are, listen to this, commanded to shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Whitefield preached, we have need of exhortation to rouse up our sleepy souls to set us upon our watch against the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The whole Bible contains little else but a history of the great and continued opposition between the children of this world and the children of God. That was a good word brought by Reverend Whitefield. What we're facing today in 2022, Oregon, United States of America, See, we can feel like what we're going through today that no one has ever gone through before. No one has ever faced struggles or trials or opposition like we're facing today. But look at this, 300 years ago, or almost 300 years ago, here's Reverend Whitefield preaching under the banner of Christ, proclaim war against the world, war against the flesh, and war against the devil. 300 years ago, three centuries ago, he preached we're surrounded by foes, rise up out of sleep. Many of you, that's your prayer, that the church would rise up out of sleep. And Whitefield says, be a light that shines against the perverted generation. Some of us are thinking, man, this could have been preached for the first time last weekend and would be just as relevant today as it was when it was preached three centuries ago. So today the political divisions are varied and different. People are different. But here's what's the same. Culture, culture opposing a patient, loving, heavenly father is woven through time from the earliest days of history. I want to invite you, if you have your word with you today, your Bible, to open up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Open up or power up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Get your notes, notebook out, ready to take some notes today. Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy about the government in a letter that we have in our New Testament. There are freedoms, rights, representation by vote and protections that we have today that they did not have when this letter was written. One thing that they didn't have when this letter was written and they were probably better off for it, when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, there were no 
political TV ads. There was not an inundation of text messages. There was not phone calls. Do you have a minute to take this survey for us? Our snail mail, like our mail mail, US mailboxes are filled with so much mail. You know, maybe you're different, but I have yet to have someone tell me I was gonna vote for this person. And then I got that text message and I changed my mind. Even though the government systems were different, there are principles that we can apply from what Paul wrote to Timothy 2,000 years ago. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, it's, we could start praying today and we would not have enough time in our lifetime to pray by name for every person on this planet. But when Paul says that prayers may be made for all people, what he's telling us is that all people are worthy of prayer. There's not a person on this planet who is unworthy of being prayed over and prayed for. In this message, Paul doesn't say, pray for the rich, pray for the poor, pray for the influencers, pray for those who don't have any influence. He doesn't say pray only for Roman citizens. He doesn't say pray only for Christians or pray only for Jewish people. He writes, pray for all people. Then Paul does specify one group. Verse two, pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead peaceful, a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. So catch this. Paul, he specifies or gives specific instruction that we are to pray for those who are in positions of authority, those who are government leaders. And when we're praying for them, Paul writes, as our prayer request is that as they lead, that they would allow us, their leadership, their administration would provide for peace and quiet, peaceful and quiet lives. Why do we pray peace and quiet over positions of people in leadership? You see, quiet does not mean what maybe we think it means. Paul is not saying, pray that we can have these leaders so that we can just cuddle up under a blanket, sip tea, and listen to the rain pitter-patter on the windows. That's not the quiet life that Paul had in mind. That's certainly not the life that Paul lived. Paul traveled, Paul preached boldly, and it was not always received well. In Lystra, they stoned Paul, they thought he was dead, and they dragged him outside the city. But Paul was alive, he got back up, went into the city, found his friend Barnabas and said, we have to get out of here. In Philippi, Paul was stripped, beaten, and thrown in jail. In Thessalonica, Paul's opponents formed a mob and started a riot in the city. See, quiet to Paul has a different meaning than what you and I might think of when we think about a quiet life. Quiet for Paul, a quiet day for Paul meant a day without being stoned, beaten, incarcerated, surrounded by mob violence or a riot. That was a quiet day. Paul, was today a quiet day? Yes, there was no riots today. It was a good day. Why why would Paul pray for a government that would provide for order? 
without stoning, beatdowns, incarceration, mob violence, and riots. Because, look at verses three and four. This is good, Paul writes, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If you're following along the sequence here, Paul said we're gonna pray over those who are in authority that their leadership, their rule would allow for us to lead lives of quiet and peace, not for our sake, but for those who don't yet know the gospel yet, so that we could have order, so that the message of Christ could be advanced. Why, 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 why? Because God desires, God desires all people to be saved. See, for Paul, the primary objective is always advancing the message of truth. The primary objective is always advancing the message of salvation, restored relationship with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. So why would Paul pray for quiet and peace? Well, it's a lot more difficult to share the message of Jesus during stoning, beatdowns, incarceration, mob violence, and riots. So he's saying if we could just have order, then we have an open channel to share the message. For Paul, quiet is an environment where authorities provide order so that the gospel can be preached and shared. Do you know that there are times in Paul's life when the government intervened and protected Paul from the religious people? Paul was always for advancing the gospel. Today, we can become so consumed with what we're against that we lose sight of what we're for. We can become so consumed with what we're against that we lose sight of what we are for. And here in 2022, there's a lot we can be against. Many of us are deeply concerned, even angry about what is happening in our public schools. And it's not just somewhere out there, it's right here in our own region. And it's not just one school district. Policies are being advanced or are already in place that prohibit parents from receiving certain communication from the teachers. The teachers are not allowed to share with the parents certain things that are going on with their own children in the schools. The curriculum on sexuality is being pushed and expanded at elementary grade levels. Lifestyles that run in opposition to biblical values are praised, protected, and celebrated, while Christ-following students and teachers are told to keep your faith silent. Now, church, in our, in our people's church family, we have families that are homeschool families. We have families that are private school families, and we have public school families. We know that every family, you make the decision that is best for your families. And we will say clearly, we have good students in our public schools. We have good educators in our public schools. We want our public schools to survive and thrive. And there are a lot of outside voices that are out there. Who I'm interested in hearing from are those who are in the buildings. And this may make some of us uncomfortable, but sometimes we have to talk about uncomfortable things. The Christians who are working in the buildings and are trying to remain faithful are telling me that it is becoming more and more difficult 
to work for districts where they are being required to represent values that in increasing measure are running in opposition to their biblical values. An election is underway in Oregon, a US Senate seat, US representative seats, state representatives, state senators, these are all on the ballot and no one is telling you how to vote. That is a decision that you make. We do provide a voter guide for you that has all the candidates and it shows you what the biblical positions are and how different candidates' positions line up with the biblical position. Again, not telling you how to vote, but helping you to make an informed decision. Many of you have already cast your ballots. If you have not yet, what we would encourage you to do is to take that ballot, pray over that ballot, and ask God to give you wisdom in how you cast your vote. There's a lot to be against but God help us to not lose sight of what we are for. Because we wanna be what he is for. We are for spiritually lost people finding relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know, last time I read my Bible, Jesus Christ actually died for every person on the planet. Even that politician who you loathe, Jesus died for that person. Actually, you and I have never met a person ever in our lifetime who Jesus did not die for. Jesus died for every person on this planet. If we look at history, it's incredible because there are deep connections between spiritual revival and political change. Connection between spiritual revival and political change. We opened our conversation today reading excerpts from a sermon by George Whitefield. George Whitefield was a leader among many pastors during a time in our national history known as the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening happened in the 1730s and the 1740s before the Revolutionary War. A spiritual revival preceded the Revolutionary War. Pastors and evangelists went from town to town. They preached about salvation in Jesus Christ and it breathed new life into the colonies. It breathed new hope into the colonies. History.com, a secular website, has an article that describes the Great Awakening, and in that article it says, historians believe the Great Awakening had lasting impact on various Christian denominations and American culture at large. Many historians say that the spiritual revival of the Great Awakening set a huge part of the foundation for the Revolutionary War. Do you know that it was actually a pastor and a local church members in Lexington, Massachusetts, who fought the first battle of the Revolutionary War? How many of you feel like we're in a middle school history class right now? A little bit, a little bit. A pastor and a local church in Lexington, Massachusetts fought the first battle of the Revolutionary War for many years in Lexington leading up to the Revolutionary War, Pastor Jonas Clark preached about freedom through Christ, freedom through Christ. And what his congregation caught, like many congregations through those original colonies, they began to see that the oppressive tyranny of British rule ran in opposition to the biblical freedom, the freedom in Christ that they were hearing about every Sunday in their church. And so a very simplified version of what happened on a night in 
the East Coast in Lexington, Massachusetts, Paul Revere and other writers set out to warn the communities. Do you remember this from your history class? The British are coming, the British are coming. Do you remember there was supposed to be lanterns in the steeple, one if by sea, two if by land, other way around, two if by land, one if by sea, something like that. Whatever, they were coming by land. And as the British are descending throughout the colonies, throughout the communities surrounding Boston, one history book describes the confidence of a British commander this way. The British commander felt certain he could repress insurrections and keep the people quiet. The British commander felt certain he could repress insurrections and keep the people quiet. Hundreds of British soldiers, well-trained, one of the finest military forces in history, the British military, descends on Lexington, Massachusetts. It's a small community. It's the middle of the night. They rallied every man and teenage boy to come out to fight. And it was a small community and only the, the, the entire population of men, young men, teenagers, was only 60 or 70. And there they are, middle of the night, in the center of town, in front of the meeting house, which was the church, as the British military comes in. The major, leading the British forces, yelled to the townspeople of Lexington, Massachusetts, throw down your arms and disperse. Throw down your arms and disperse. There they were, not dispersing, standing with weapons drawn in a standoff. And once again, the major leading the British forces yells, throw down your arms and disperse. And he asks them a question. Why don't you lay down your arms and disperse? The residents of Lexington, Massachusetts did not disperse. Shots were fired. And in the early hours, the dark hours of the morning on that night in the late 1700s, several men from Lexington, Massachusetts died. It was a short battle. The Americans lost. But we know the rest of the story. And America, what is now the United States of America, would win freedom by winning the Revolutionary War. What we're facing today is not equal to the Revolutionary War. However, we can find strength when we look at the boldness of these people. 200 plus years later, there are still versions of what are very similar to throw down your arms and disperse. Why don't you just lay down your arms and disperse? Some have the confidence that they can just hold down and keep the Christians quiet. Those who stand for what is against the Bible would like you to stand down and disperse. Just go away quietly. Go to your church. Stay out of this. But what we're seeing in school board meetings, city council meetings, county board meetings, believers are taking a stand. No, we will not stand down and quietly disperse. 
Now, I want to be crystal perfectly clear on this. No one is suggesting, no one is advocating for, no one is even inferring violence. That's not the point. In fact, it is very much the opposite. Believers, we have a legal, we have legal peaceful channels in this country to speak up, to advocate, to call out, to oppose, and even to run for political office. Yes, there are ways that we can react to what's happening and we can say, not on my watch. At the same time, we have to guard our hearts from becoming so consumed with what we're against that we lose sight of what we're for. A pastor, mentor, friend of mine recently said in a conversation that there are many Christians who need to stop getting their theology from cable news. We are for lost people finding hope in Jesus Christ. We pray for a way forward, a way of order that we can share the message of Jesus openly without opposition. The Great Awakening preceded the Revolutionary War. Spiritual revival preceded political change. And the outcome was long-lasting, is still long-lasting in this country. Here's what I want you to hear today. Political change without spiritual revival will likely be short-lived. Political change without spiritual revival will likely be short-lived. And if you want one more moment to feel like you're in your middle school history class, I have a different historical event to talk about that had a very different outcome a different long-term outcome. And I'm talking about prohibition. Prohibition was a constitutional law that banned producing, importing, transporting, and selling alcohol. We're not bringing this up today to make a case for or against prohibition. What I do want to point out is that the case was made from biblical arguments that alcohol should be banned in this nation. Now, not every pastor, not every Christian politician was for prohibition, but those who were for prohibition, they succeeded. Here's what one pastor wrote. In the name of God and humanity, we make our appeal, knowing as we do that the sale of intoxicating liquors is the parent of every misery, prolific of all woe in this life, desolating families, the chief incentive to crime, we, the mothers, wives, and daughters representing the moral and religious sentiment of our town. To save the loved members of our households from the temptation of strong drink, from acquiring an appetite for it, and to rescue, if possible, those that have already acquired it, earnestly request that you will pledge yourself to cease the traffic here in these drinks forthwith and forever. We also add the hope that you will abolish your gambling tables. Oh, by the way, Reverend Lester Williams. Christians in the early 1900s argued for prohibition with arguments based on the way that the Old Testament translates words for alcohol. Christians argued for prohibition based on the proverb that calls wine a mocker. Christians argued for prohibition, even using the Old Testament Nazarite vow as a model for abstinence. And in, in January of 2019, 
January of 1919, a constitutional amendment succeeds making the production, transport, and sale of alcohol illegal. Here's why we're talking about this here today. We might be tempted to convince ourselves if we could just get a law with enough teeth, we could protect biblical values through the government. I cannot overemphasize what a big deal this was. In 1919, they got a constitutional amendment. That's as strong as it gets. If we could only get a constitutional amendment to cover schools, life in the womb, marriage, and religious freedoms, the problem, the problem, the problem is that even a constitutional amendment on its own cannot produce heart change. No constitutional amendment on its own can produce a change in the human heart. There was political change, but there was no sweeping spiritual revival. Political change was not backed by heart change. So what happened in the years that followed the constitutional amendment that we call prohibition, bootlegging, moonshine, speakeasies. If you don't know what those words mean, you can Google and read about them later or right now. A constitutional amendment did not end America's appetite for alcohol. And eventually in 1933, prohibition was repealed and ended. So here we are today. Again, many, but not all of us, we would desire political change. Yes, Christians often see it as a win when the law of the land lines up with God's law and God's ways. But if we see political victories as the finish line, we miss out on the work that Jesus has commissioned us to do. So what do we do about this? What do we do about this? Yes, God may be giving you a boldness to run for office. God may be giving you a boldness to have a conversation with a school administrator or principal. God may be giving you a boldness because you are the principal and he's saying, stay in the school. God may be giving you a boldness to speak up at a public meeting, to start a petition or to sign a recall. And also, God may be challenging you to do today what Jesus said to do. Pray for your enemies. Not my words. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. It could be your heavenly father is leading you to find and plug into or to even start a ministry that reaches out to students, staff, and teachers with the message of Jesus Christ. Do you remember that Jesus, he also said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. When we are surrounded by spiritually lost people, there are people who are waiting for someone to tell them that Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross on their behalf. 
Perhaps there's a neighbor or coworker who stands for everything that you are against. And when you go for a walk through your neighborhood during this time when we have all the political signs out there, maybe you go out of your way to not go by that neighbor's house. Or maybe if they're in your workplace and you have cubicles, there's someone, you have to go walk three times as far, but you go that far because you don't want to interact with that person who is for everything that you're against. It's possible that today your heavenly father is saying, don't do that anymore. And he wants you to actually change your mindset and instead go in the direction of the person that you're trying to avoid. He wants you to intersect and intercept them with friendliness and kindness to build a relationship so that you might be the ambassador of hope who shares with them the message that will change their life. Do you know we have people in this congregation and you would say, once upon a time, I was that person. I was that person and my Stances were in contradiction to God's word. And yet someone loved me so much. Instead of having a political fight with me, they told me about Jesus and how Jesus suffered and died for me. Because at the end of the day, if all we've done is won an argument, what have we really won? Many of you know that God called me to pastoral ministry about 10 years ago. And before that, I had a 10-year career in working in television news as a, as a journalist. And this was in, mostly in Wisconsin. And during that time, uh, we were covering a political race. And I remember talking to a campaign manager, one of the strategists, about this one particular race. And, and I asked the campaign manager, how many people do you think, what percentage of the population do you think that you need to convince from the other side to leave their candidate and vote for your candidate? Like when you're out campaigning, how much of your focus is on the people who are planning to vote for the other person? How many minds do you have to change in order to win this election? And this campaign strategist, this campaign manager said, well, for this particular race, we actually don't believe we need to win anybody who plans to vote for the other candidate. He said, because of the politics of this region, they're already highly in our favor. So in order for us to win this election, all we need to do is rally the base. Have you heard that phrase before? Rally the base meaning that all we need to do is to convince the people who already believe the way that we believe to stand up and to participate. In this particular race, the campaign manager strategist, their strategy was that they don't even need to worry about those who are on the other side. Let me just say, this is never how it is as citizens of heaven. We are never called to exclusively rally the base, meaning that we keep an insulated view with those who are only Christians. Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, crossed cultural, religious, 
barriers. He crossed gender barriers to be the messenger of hope for all time. And it's not any different today. God is calling us to cross lines that other people will not cross. God may be leading you to speak to someone who no one else wants to speak to, to take a risk, to take a chance, to step out of our holy huddles. And instead of pointing the finger and just getting all worked up about what we're against, remembering what we're for, what we're for, that those who do not yet know the hope of Jesus Christ would learn that Jesus, the savior of the world, went to the cross on their behalf, was put in a sealed tomb, and three days later, the tomb was empty. We pray that this week's message has been practical, encouraging, and challenging. Let us know if you made a first-time commitment or recommitment to following Christ. Visit peopleschurch.com and click Connect to share your decision with us. There is great value in being a part of a Christ-centered, Bible-teaching faith community. If you are looking for a church home, Pastor Tom Murray invites you to People's Church in Salem. Sunday morning and evening worship services, group Bible studies, relevant engaging activities for kids and youth in safe, secure environments. Watch messages anytime or plan your visit at peopleschurch.com.